Well, we've come to the fourth beatitude, which deals with the motive, the driving passion of these beatitudes, and it's the blessing that comes to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So you could kind of think of this as the want to of these beatitudes. How do you get people to the place where they really want to do the things that these beatitudes are, are talking about? Well, for sure, you can't skip over the first three rungs, nor can you go on to the next four rungs of this ladder until God's Spirit has begun working in you uh, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So that willingness He works in you is what this beatitude is talking about. And when you think about it, this willingness is amazing because naturally humans have all kinds of hungers, hungers that drive them to do things but they don't hunger and thirst after righteousness until God's grace invades their hearts and begins to work this motivation. And this motivation carries them through into a maturity and into victory. Now, it should be growing through the rest of our lives, but frequently it is not. Frequently we quench this hunger uh, within us. God begins it at regeneration, but it should be a thing that uh, continues to grow. And as it grows, it begins to crucify and make weaker and weaker the other hungers in our lives. The famous Reformed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said of this beatitude, he is blessed because in the presence of this hunger, many meaner hungers die out. One master passion, like Aaron's rod, swallows up all the rest. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness, and therefore he is done with the craving of lust, the greed of avarice, the passion of hate, and pining of, admi- uh, of ambition. And so this really is a key, a key uh, motive for us to uh, grow in victory and grow in maturity. And what I want to do is I want to... Take a look at all four of these Beatitudes through the the lens of sports since we've just recently come off of the Olympics. Beatitude number one is a very poor person who is a would-be skater, but she's so poor she's not even been on the ice once. But she goes to the master coach and she tells this master coach, hey, I've never skated in my life, but would you coach me? And uh, would you pay my way? And uh, would you give me some talent? And then would you train me in this talent? And then would you be buying me some skates and some clothing? I mean, that's what spiritual bankruptcy is all about. And God not only tells us that's where we need to be, but it says he has to give us the, the humility, the ability to get past that pride to make such an audacious request. I mean, it is really audacious to come to the Lord and say, Lord, would you give me all of these things? And uh, that's where faith starts at the Christian walk. And you know what? The moment we come in faith to the God as poor beggars and saying, Lord, we have nothing. But would you give me? And God says, yeah, I'll give you not only what you're thinking. I'm going to give you the kingdom of heaven and all of the resources of that kingdom. That's beatitude number one. Beatitude number two is a willingness for this skater to be corrected and to change. It's a willingness to hate the bad habits enough to put them off. Beatitude three is a willingness to submit oneself daily to the training of the master coach without any questioning. Now, sometimes we Christians, 
We just think what the coach is asking us to do and the, the crazy outfits he has us wear. Some of those outfits in the Olympics were pretty crazy, weren't they? And we think, really, I don't think this is a good idea. And I don't think that law sounds too good. And, and God says, look, I'm the master coach. You've got to trust me. You've got to do exactly what I'm saying without any questioning. That's what this beatitude uh, is about. Number three. It's a willingness to trust the coach no matter what he says. So meekness there is an utter yieldedness to God, a willingness to be trained and tamed by him. Beatitude 4 is the desire or passion to persevere in the Christian life. So it's the want to of skating. It's the motivation that keeps that skater practicing and practicing. No matter how many times he falls, it's the want to to keep on going. Now, those four Beatitudes frame the inner disposition that is absolutely essential if we're going to have success in the next four Beatitudes, which are the, the, the actual actions of righteousness. So this is the inner preparation. Those are the actual actions of righteousness. If you don't have the want to of skating, you're not going to have what it takes to put up with the hard falls and do the hard practices and devote your life to skating. And in the same way, If you don't have this hungering, this want to, you don't have what it takes to be merciful when they don't deserve mercy. They've been persecuting you. And to be pure in heart and to be peacemakers and to live so righteously that it guarantees opposition and it guarantees competition. That's what the last four Beatitudes are all about. So it takes hunger to get there. It takes hunger to be filled. Now, in one sense, that's an inadequate illustration I think it's accurate to a point, but we saw there's another aspect to this too, that taming was of a tamed uh, wild stallion, right? So in one sense, God is taking a wild stallion, and in the initial stages, this wild stallion resists. He fights against his master. And so there's a sense in which sometimes we lack that want to. You know, we we think, I don't really want to do what the Lord's calling me to do. And God keeps working with us, training us, training us. And the longer that this stallion stays with the master, the more this stallion becomes fond of the goodness of this master and wants to be like his master. Okay, and so it's a process that God is taking us through in our lives. God instills in our hearts a deep, deep desire to be more like him. Now, both illustrations, I think, have weaknesses, but they do illustrate the want to of this beatitude. Now, let's kind of tear this beatitude apart, try to figure out what it means. First thing that we see in this beatitude is that happiness is bound up with the pursuit of righteous living. Now, this may have been a surprise to some of the people who were hearing because in the news every day, is the righteousness of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees didn't seem to be too happy. In fact, there wasn't a shred of happiness about the the Pharisaic uh, approach to righteousness. One of the frustrations that the Pharisees had was so few people were trying to imitate the Pharisees. You know, if you read history, there weren't a whole lot of people that were actually trying to live like a Pharisee lived. It was tough. It was no fun. And so for the people of that day, just like the people of today, holiness many times was equated with misery, not with happiness. So what's going on here? I think it's they have a wrong view of what law keeping is about. They had a wrong view of what righteousness was about. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Christ said, for I say to you 
that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that's not the kind of righteousness we're talking about here. Uh, you know, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees, that didn't produce any, any happiness. So we're not talking about that. And when he says we're not talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees, he's saying we're not talking about any man-made righteousness because if the Pharisees couldn't be there, nobody could be. They were the kings of the nitpickers, okay? They were the cream of the crop when it came to human uh, righteousness. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ proceeds to absolutely devastate and blow the Pharisees out of the water. Over and over again, he is opposing their oral traditions. When he says, you have heard it said, he's not quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting their distorted interpretations of the Old Testament through their oral traditions. And so what he's doing is he's trying to show that these Pharisees absolutely uh, do not qualify. Uh, the Pharisees thought that they were pure in the sexual relations department, and yet he shows them that they were full of harlotry and lust in their hearts. They thought, hey, we don't commit murder. We keep the sixth commandment. And he shows them, look, if you are angry at your brother without cause, you have broken that commandment. And in various other ways, he showed that they had broken the law in terms of the depth of righteousness within and then he goes on and he shows how they had broken the law in terms of the breadth of righteousness outside. They did not even keep the law literally, outwardly. He showed in various ways that they violated the law through their man-made traditions. And so he was devastating these, um, uh, these, uh, these people. And this is one of the reasons why they wanted to kill him. He was an embarrassment to, to them. He was illustrating the truth of Romans 3.10. There is none righteous no, not one. Now, Scripture does not deny that people can't do outwardly good things. Of course they can. The Bible talks about those outwardly good things. It's better that they do some good things defiled by sin than none. But what he says is those good things that they do are so defiled by sin, by inward wrong motives, inward wrong goals, and other nasty, creepy crawlies inside that they're utterly unfit to be offered up to God. He said to them, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And what he was doing is he was bringing them to the place where they could say with Paul, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So when you read in, in Paul... This is one of the keys to reading Paul. When you read in Paul, you don't find Paul saying that he had a happiness by producing righteousness. It's no fun pumping a dry well. You know, you can pump for hours and you don't get any water out of it, right? He found his happiness in receiving righteousness from God. Receiving it. Philippians 3, 9 says that I, and this is near the end of his life, okay, that I may be found in him not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And so it's really in pursuing him uh, that, uh, and receiving his righteousness that we find happiness. So that's why we're hungry and thirsting for it. We cannot produce it ourselves. It's something that's got to come from outside. Now, in your outlines, I've listed two kinds of righteousness that God gives to us. The first kind is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The second kind is the imparted righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look in Matthew 6 in a little bit um, at his exposition of this beatitude, you're going to be seeing that he's almost exclusively talking about imparted righteousness because he's talking to believers and people get confused on that. But I still want to begin with imputed righteousness because this begins our Christian life and it's what makes us secure through the rest of our Christian life. So what is imputed righteousness? It's an accounting term. Uh, It means that something has been put to our account, put on the ledger. Okay, it's a legal transaction. Uh, When I go to the bank and I cash a check, you know, they don't come up and say, wait a minute, you don't have any money here. This money belongs to Dominion Covenant Church. It says Dominion Covenant Church right on this, uh, this check here. And I say, no, but Dominion Covenant Church is putting this to my account. You need to credit it to my ledger. Okay, that's what accounting is all about. It's uh, the moment we put our faith in Christ, which is actually Beatitude 1. Okay, the moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what God did is he credited to our account every righteous deed that Jesus has ever done, and he treats us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we were perfectly righteous. Now, that's just an amazing, amazing concept, and I encourage you to study out the doctrine of imputation. It's, it's very, very uh, important. And that's the first way in which our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a perfect righteousness, right? It's the righteousness of Christ. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it's an accounting term. But there's a second way in which our righteousness is to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that is we need to be hungering for an imparted righteousness. So we're not talking about the legal transaction where we're in a courtroom. God says, okay, he's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. This is an actual imparted righteousness where we begin to live like the righteous. Okay, it's in, it transforms our hearts, transforms our lives. First John 3, 7 says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I want you to notice here that you can practice righteousness. Some people have given the false idea that the word righteousness deals with justification and the word holiness deals with uh, sanctification. No, no, they're just two different words dealing with both justification and sanctification. Uh, Holiness means to be set apart from the world to God. Righteousness means to be following God's law. And, uh, And so here he indicates very clearly You can practice it. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. In other words, what he's saying is, if you've had the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, automatically you're going to begin to live righteously. Another way of saying it is, if you've been justified, automatically you're going to start to be sanctified. Another way of saying it is, if you've been saved, your life is going to begin to be transformed. Here's what um, 1 John 3.10 says. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, everybody who's born again begins to practice righteousness. First one that we come, Beatitude 1 is is doing nothing, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So it's faith, it's coming to Christ. But the first act of righteousness is Beatitude 2, where you start mourning over your sin. You start grieving over your sin. Next act of righteousness that you do is you submit yourself to the master and you say, Lord, I want to be yielded to you. 
tame my wild heart. I know I'm going to buck. I'm going to have problems, but I want to be following after you. And every beatitude after that is additional righteousness that the Lord is working within us. And so once again, uh, you can see that um, we've got to start with beatitude one with emptiness, poorness of spirit. If you are poor in everything, then there aren't any of these other beatitudes you're going to be able to produce from your flesh. You're going to get them from the Lord. They're going to be coming from from him. And since we never arrive while we're here on earth, we're not going to be perfect till we get to heaven. It means there's never going to be a time where we're not going to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So again, this continues through the rest of our lives. We're always going to be hungering for more. Actually, it's an addiction. You want to be more and more like the Lord. He's the righteous one. And the more you taste and see that he is good, the more addicted you get and the more you hunger and thirst after him. So Hebrews 11, verse 33, speaks of people working righteousness by faith. Why does he say by faith instead of by works? You'd think working righteousness by working, but he says, no, working righteousness by faith. Well, the reason it's by faith is because we're not supposed to be producing anything from our flesh. Everything is supposed to be claimed from the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike the Pharisees who had a self-righteousness, We as believers are supposed to be looking to the Lord for his righteousness, his power, his strength every day of our lives. And the sad thing is a lot of Christians don't do that. They get saved by faith. They have the odd time here and there where they, by faith, are doing some sanctification. But they don't realize the whole of their Christian life, even their sanctification, needs to be by faith. Here's what Galatians 3 verse 3 says. Are you so foolish Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made mature by the flesh? He's saying that's ridiculous. Why would you think if you're a poor uh, steward who has nothing in yourself that you can supply anything? Everything has to come from Christ. Now, many Christians miss this, and I think this is why they miss the happiness of a holiness is because they're trying to produce righteousness by the power of their flesh. You cannot do it. Okay, they're trying to live like the Pharisees did. And as a result, they have dryness in their lives and discouragement and their righteousness just does not lead uh, to happiness, at least to misery. In, in Galatians 3, verse 4, he uses the illustration of miracles. He continues on. He said, you cannot live by works. You've got to live as a Christian by faith. He says, think of this. When we work miracles among you by the Holy Spirit, do we do it by the works of the flesh or do we do it by the hearing of faith? He says, well, it's obvious we do it by the hearing of faith. Our flesh can't do miracles. Only God can do miracles. And he says, that's the way it's supposed to be for all of the rest of our life as well. It's, it's a life lived by faith. So it's only an imparted righteousness that comes from God that can bring the kind of happiness that's here. Every other kind of righteousness is a counterfeit. That's why we hunger and thirst after it. Just as a body needs physical food from outside to strengthen that body, A soul needs righteousness from outside to strengthen and empower that soul. And that's why so much of Christ's exposition, which we'll be getting to in a little bit, uh, deals with prayer. What are you doing when you're praying? You're asking for something you don't have, right? So much of this hunger and thirsting righteousness. Lord, I don't have this. I'm coming to you today for the needs that I have. And we're going to give some practical applications of that in a moment. But I do want you to notice right now that Christ not only says that true happiness is found in true righteousness, but true happiness is found in true filling. That's the last part of the Beatitude. It says, for they shall be filled. 
So just as you can have a counterfeit happiness, you can have a counterfeit righteousness, you can have a counterfeit filling. And there are so many Christians who are satisfied with something that is far less than what God wants to fill us with. And we're going to be looking at some of that. Happiness can itself be a counterfeit. And what I want to point out is that happiness is a byproduct of the filling. It is not the filling itself. Uh, So many people are satisfied with a momentary happiness, a wonderful experience, you know, that charges them for the rest of that day or with a blessing from God, an incredible seminar that they've been to. Woo, they're on a high and they feel great. And they're following after the Lord. But the Psalms that form the background for this show David was not satisfied with anything less than an encounter with God himself. He says, my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Now, that makes sense. If God is the only one who can give the kind of righteousness that we're talking about here and and what we're hungering after is to be more like God, then what are we asking for? We're asking to be filled with God himself. I want you to listen to John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What an incredible promise. God is promising that he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will fill us with himself. Ephesians 5 says exactly the same thing. It tells us to be filled with the Spirit. But it's saying the only way you can have fulfillment in marriage or fulfillment at work or the other things that he lists through the rest of that book is as you are filled with the Spirit. The Ephesians 5.18, look it up in the Greek sometime. The, the, the grammar that's used there indicates that the filling with the Spirit is the means by which we sing with grace in our hearts. It's the means by which we've got great marriages. It's the means by which we can be good bosses, good employees, and all of the other things that he talks about in, in, in that passage. So if you long for righteousness, you need to be longing to be filled with the Holy Spirit to achieve it because anything less than God himself, you're going to miss out on both the righteousness and the happiness. And yet Satan tries to fill our heart with anything and everything except for God. So we're going to take a look at Roman numeral 2, some of the counterfeits uh, that are out there. 1 John 2, verse 16, I think summarizes the most obvious hungers that none of us would be fooled by. Um, It speaks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, the lust of the flesh is anything that makes our bodies feel good. It can be... You know, a craving for chocolate or nicotine or sex or drink or sleep or dopamine highs or a soft mattress. Anything good can become an idol that we crave for instead of the after effect. In other words, the gift of the Lord. So it can become a substitute for our right pursuit. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have everything that we see, even if our neighbor owns it. Now, there can be an overlap between the two. For example, I can see a brownie on the table And I have lust of the eyes, but that immediately appeals to the lust of the flesh as well. So they can go together. But frequently, the lust of the eyes is, ooh, I see that. I want that automobile. And uh, I want that new hunting rifle. And I want that uh, new, you know, dishwasher or whatever it may may be. And when we buy it, we temporarily feel better, don't we? It's kind of a filling, but it's not a filling that satisfies. And so we're constantly on this search for more fillings. Pride of life. 
is a craving for advancement that will elevate us in the eyes of men. Now, it could be that you're getting advanced at work, at home, um, in the church. It could be advancement through praise. It could be advancement through finances, through power, approval. It could be any number of ways of advancement. And I think most of us recognize, okay, these are the obvious, more gross forms of counterfeit hungers and counterfeit fillings. What we often don't recognize are the more refined versions of these counterfeit cravings and counterfeit fillings. For example, hungering for man's approval. This is a big one. And it can be so subtle. Um, an employee can justify this craving because the Bible commands him to be a good employee. But his reason for being a good employee is, I just got to have this master's approval. I want to get a better job. And so you're doing everything you can to please that person. And yet here's what Paul says to the Colossians uh, when they serve their masters. He says, do it not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Being a men pleaser will eventually let you down. In fact, it's going to guarantee you won't have the filling of God. Uh, Galatians 1.10 says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> That's pretty strong words. If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We can do this in so many different subtle ways. A person might go to church because he wants his wife to think better of him or because the parents expect it. Or a woman might go to the prayer meeting because she wants her friend to approve of her. And you might think, why would she go through all of that if it's not really coming from her heart? Because what her friend thinks is very important to her. And, you know, when we look inside at our hearts, we many times don't even understand, Lord, are my motives pure? I don't always know my motives. That's why we pray, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there is any wicked way in me because we're blind uh, to these things. But here's, here's the point. God put that desire for approval within our hearts when he created Adam and Eve. But where was it supposed to be directed? It was supposed to be directed to the Lord to say that we feel good when God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What's happened, that's got perverted. It's gotten twisted around where what we crave is not God's approval. We crave peer approval or our boss's approval or family approval or church approval. We're craving everybody's approval except for the very one for whom our heart was created. And so here's what we need to do. We need to recognize, okay, God placed that hunger there. And if I can train that hunger to be satisfied with God's well done, thou good and faithful servant, we're well on our way. Same is true of hunger to belong. God put that within our hearts. He wants us to be in community with each other, in community with him. But if anything in life or anyone becomes more important in terms of belonging, they've become an idol. John 9, verse 22. I won't read it, but there was the parents of the, the guy that was healed. And it says, because they feared getting put out of the synagogue, they didn't follow Christ. So here's a desire to belong to this community kept them actually from wanting to belong to Christ. Uh, even in believers' lives, this hunger to belong can lower the degree to which we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay, another subtle counterfeit is hungering for heaven, but not hungering for righteousness itself. And Paul uh, condemns people on this. He says that they want to be saved from the punishment of sin, but not from the sin itself. Thomas Watson has written a, a fantastic book. I recommend you guys read it on the Beatitudes. And uh, this sermon series is 
You know, it's not going to duplicate what he's got there. It's well worth reading. But on this particular point, Thomas Watson says that some people hunger for the crown of righteousness, but not for the way of righteousness. Okay? And I think that Balaam is a, an excellent example of this. He, uh, he really feared dying. But here is what Balaam said in Numbers. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Why did he do that? He wasn't even a believer. New Testament says he, he's gone to hell. Okay, he's not even a believer. That's a remarkable testimony. He says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. What's he hungering for there? I think he's hungering for the reward for heaven. He feared death. What he saw is that the righteous, when they faced death, they had confidence. They had peace. They had security. He didn't have that. He feared dying. He feared hell and he hungered for heaven. But here was the problem. He loved the wages of sin too much to hunger after righteousness. Now contrast that with 1 Peter 2, 7, which says to you who believe he is precious. He is precious. Hungering for heaven can be a counterfeit for hungering for God. Of course, hungering for happiness is another counterfeit. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 33. This is just a, a remarkable little passage here to show how subtle these counterfeits can really be. Now, in this situation, Ezekiel was actually pretty excited about an apparent revival that was breaking out in his church. Crowds of people that are coming to listen to him. And it's obvious these people love to hear his preaching. They love to come to the church. And God says, no, what, what's going on there is a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. Let's begin reading at verse 30. Ezekiel 33, beginning at verse 30. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come, hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, I want you to notice how subtle this counterfeit are, is. They're acting just like God's people should act. They're excited about the preaching of the word. They're excited about the worship that's going on. They're excited about the pastor. Uh, in other words, they... They find pleasure in the things God says we ought to find pleasure, and yet it's still a counterfeit. In fact, it says they were so happy, he likens their delight in the church and in Ezekiel's preaching to the delight that they would have when they went to the best rock concerts, or I guess they didn't have rock back there, but the best music concerts, back, okay? They really enjoyed going there, and yet they were not interested in doing God's will. They had no hunger and thirst after righteousness. In some strange way, he says that their heart was after their own gain, their own happiness, not righteousness. In contrast, Proverbs 29, 18 says, but happy is he who keeps the law. Proverbs 16, 20, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Now, in the parable of these sowers, Christ says you can actually find joy 
in the gospel and not even be a true believer. That's one of the scariest parts of the parable of the sowers is uh, verses 20 through 21. Let me read that for you. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So it is possible for you to have joy in the gospel, joy in the word, and yet not have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the evidence that you're following God is not that you have joy. Evidence that you're following God is that you hunger and thirst after righteousness. I think it's really a key. Second Corinthians 13 verse five says, examine yourselves as to whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Now I'm doing a spiritual checkup this morning, not to make you miserable, but because I want your happiness. I don't want you diverted from true happiness into the counterfeit happinesses that are out there. And true happiness can be incredibly deep. In fact, there are times where I have thought my, I was going to die from happiness, like my heart was going to bust or something. It can be incredibly deep. Here's what Psalm 36, 8 says. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Not just a trickle of pleasures, the river of God's pleasures and not just a little bit of food, a house full of food. He says he can do that in your life if you will follow these beatitudes. Now, there's a fifth counterfeit that we need to look at, and that is hungering conditionally. I think the rich young ruler is an example of this. Uh, he, here was a guy who thought he had been pursuing after righteousness his whole life. And yet when Jesus puts his finger on his idol, what was his idol? His possessions, right? When Jesus puts his finger on his idol and says, destroy that idol, he walked away from Christ. Okay? He hungered conditionally. Job, in contrast, was willing for God to destroy everything, to take away everything. And he was still willing uh, to worship uh, the Lord. And uh, I think we need to um, start then with beatitude uh, number one, uh, we've got to realize this is not the way to get saved. I don't want you to get confused by that as if, okay, Pastor Kaiser says we've got to hunger harder in order to get saved. No, 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 it's nothing about that. God's the one who produces this hunger. Beatitude number one says we are empty. We bring nothing. And at the moment that we come to God as a beggar, we receive the kingdom and all of its resources. So this has nothing to do with getting saved. This has everything to do with putting away counterfeit hungers with counterfeit fillings and to receive the genuine hunger of the Lord from his throne and to be filled with God to overflowing. That's what we want in, in our lives, having his joy. Now, point E, really, what I've just been talking about is holding out in one or more areas of your life and saying to God, hands off, I'm not going to give you this area of my life. Point F is a little bit different. Point F is being half-hearted, lazy, for long periods saying, okay, there's, you know, long periods you're just not pursuing after righteousness. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. <laughs> what, he's, what he's saying there is that people who are indwelt by the Spirit are going to be manly in their pursuit after righteousness and after the kingdom. 
They take it by force. There isn't anything that they want to come between God and them, between His happiness and them, between His filling and them. They want it. They pursue after it. Now, we could list all kinds of other counterfeits, but I think the, the key point is they exist. Just be aware of them. If I tried to list them all, then you might have a counterfeit that I've missed and you say, ah, I'm safe, okay? Just realize they exist. And all of these cravings that we are following after, I mean, they're, they're sort of like little demons, you know? They're pulling you away from the grand master craving that's going to get you the satisfaction that you need. So we've got to put them away. Now, C.S. Lewis once said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are like half-hearted creatures who fool about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like children who would rather go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're too easily pleased. Blaise Pascal said, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Jeremiah summarizes everything I've said here in these words. For my people have committed two evils. Here's the first one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second... They've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, if the Spirit of God has been convicting you this morning that you don't have any hunger, that you're maybe not even a true believer, what I would encourage you to do is not quench that Spirit immediately. Say, yes, Holy Spirit, I want you to lead me by the hand back to Beatitude 1. As a poor beggar, I come to you. And I receive from you. Maybe you're worried that your hungering and thirsting is too weak. Well, if that's the case, I've got three encouragements for you. First encouragement, you may have a weak pulse, but a weak pulse is a sign of life, right? And if you grieve that you don't hunger very much, that's a sign you're at least at step two. You're mourning <laughs> over your lack of hunger. It's a definite sign that you are a believer. But even if you don't grieve that you, that you mourn, but you wish you grieved that you mourn, just go back to beatitude number one and ask the Lord and say, Lord, I hate the fact that I have all of these other hungers. Please give me a hunger that's blessed by you. Please give me a hunger that leads to righteousness. And if you do, God is not going to turn you away. I guarantee it. Because he says... A bruised reed he will not break. Matthew 12, verse 20. Now, you may feel bent over, almost ready to break. You may feel so dry, but God says, I'm not going to break that. Just go to him. He will give you that hunger if you go and you open up your heart to him. Second, avoid things that tend to hinder appetites. This is Beatitude 2. So we're going back on the rungs. If you lack this one, obviously you're lacking something in the earlier rungs. Go back to Beatitude 2. Put off the spiritual junk food that you've been eating in between the meals, you know, that are killing your appetite. Yeah, what you need to do is recognize the things that drag you away from a desire to pray, the things that drag you away from a desire uh, to, 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 to go to worship or to be with God's people. You know exactly what those desires are. And what I'm saying is 
Put them away. Grieve over that. Don't let anything come between you and God's filling. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot experience the sweetness of God's love and fellowship when you're clinging to the world. He just won't let you. So make it your heart's passion to be filled with him. Third, work up an appetite. So we're working ourselves up the ladder, right? This is step number three, Beatitude three. Work up an appetite for righteousness through exercise, through exercise. Say to your coach, coach, I need more training. Uh, Obviously, I'm missing out on this meekness wrong here. I need more training. When I do a workout, which unfortunately is more rare than it uh, should be, but I do a workout before breakfast, it really does get my appetite going. By the time I'm done with that workout, man, I'm ready for breakfast. And in the same way, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, there are a lot of different exercises we can get do to get those spiritual juices going, to get that appetite going. Hebrews 3, verse 13 gives us one. It tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And what I want you to do is exhort one another. And he tells so that we don't fall away. So what he's saying is here's an exercise. Engage in accountability relationships. Uh, Spend time in conversation with each other. And go to Bible studies, hang out together, fellowship. He says, these are spiritual exercises. We'll get your juices going and renew your appetite for the things of God. Other exercises, Bible reading, fasting, prayer, going to church, teaching your family. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter six. We're going to look at Christ's exposition of this beatitude uh, very, very briefly and uh, see some of the medical advice that Christ gives for this uh, increasing appetite or lack of appetite. What kinds of things will get our appetite for righteousness going? And let's begin reading at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, if you're praying so that other people will be pleased, you're praying for the wrong kind of filling. You will get filled, but it's the wrong kind of filling. So we need to ask ourselves, what am I hungering for? Uh, What is my reward? Is it to have others think well of me? Is it to impress? Is it to fit in? Is it to be accepted by my peers that they think I'm a good guy? Is it to receive the praise and acceptance of men? That'll all let you down. Verse 6 shows us what kind of medicine will cause this spiritual hunger to grow. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He is saying when you aggressively pursue intimacy with Christ or what John Owen spoke of as communion with Christ or with God, your heart will start hungering for the right things. It'll be automatic. You won't have to try to, oh, how do I get more hungry? I try to get more hungry. No, it'll automatically happen as you start engaging in these things. Now, he's not saying here that public prayer is wrong. He commands public prayer in an exposition of a different beatitude. And he's dealing with a different thing. But right here, he's saying, This is the place at which that hunger is really going to grow uh, within you. You got to take the time to find intimacy with him. 
Here's what John 14 says. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So we're talking here about the deepest fellowship that it's possible for us to have. The same kind of fellowship Christ and and union Christ had with the Father. He says we can have as well. In the next verse, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So to manifest means a tangible experience of his presence with you. And sometimes it doesn't, it's not always an overwhelming. Sometimes it's just a peace, a settled peace. You just go into a tough situation with absolute peace. Other times it's such an overwhelming sense of his love. But it's a tangible manifestation of God with you that makes you want more and more of God. And so let me read that again and continue on. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if this beatitude is your master passion in life, you will go to the source of righteousness to be fed over and over again and to be filled over and over. You will not be disappointed. Verse 7 gives us another false medicine that people use to get closer to God. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Saying a hundred Hail Marys... And actually, that's a blasphemy because people all over the world, you know, millions of people praying to Mary and she hears all their prayers. That treats her as omniscient. But anyway, saying a hundred Hail Marys, saying a hundred Lord's prayers is not going to get you filled with the filling that he's talking about here. In fact, it's an attempt to manipulate God. God wants a relationship. He does not want a formula. And so this um, this hunger that he's talking about here is the kind of hunger David had where he hungers after God. He knows God alone is the source. It's not going through motions. Verse 8 gives another false medicine. Therefore, do not be like them. Do not be like them. Too many Christians, too much Christianity, I should say, is trying to be like others. It's just really what it amounts to. Now, obviously, Scripture says you can imitate your leaders, but only as they're imitating Christ. Imitate me even as I also imitate Christ. So what's happening there when you imitate Paul? Okay, your direction. Paul's telling me my focus should be not on Paul, but should be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if your pattern in life is to look to others, okay, your your hunger is your your pattern is trying to be like others. Maybe I should say it that way. If you're trying to be like others, who are you going to hunger for? You're going to hunger for them. If you're trying to be like God, this is true righteousness, you're going to be hungering for him. Now, the first pattern, trying to be like men, is going to lead more toward a social righteousness. In fact, eventually you'll become a Pharisee. You're going to be content just so long as you're better than everybody else. But when you go to the Lord, it's going to be humbling because you're going to realize it's so out of my grasp. It's so far beyond where I can be. And yet it's so wonderful that instead of trying to be like others and one-upmanship, you're hungering, you're thirsting after God for the rest of your life. You want to be like Him. So that's what he's saying. Don't be like them. Verse 8, 
deals with the real medicine from God's hand. Do you have a faith that God cares? Verse 8 says, For your father knows the things that you need of before you ask him. God cares like a father and better than a father. Okay? And if we see him as being generous, we're much more likely to hunger to the right source than we are if we think God does not love us. God wants your happiness more than you do. 